0: J.D. Vance, who's actually running for Rob Portman's United States Senate seat in Ohio, Yale Law School graduate, grew up in Middletown, Ohio. His family, of course, had origins in Appalachia, and they moved up there for work. Armco Steel brought a bunch there, and many of you have read the book. It was for... LA Times a while back said in their list it was 76 weeks, Hillbilly Elegy at the top of the best selling list for books. J.D. Vance's family was beset by the sorrows and the reapings of Appalachian vice. Sin weaves such a horrible story. Vance had a tough upbringing, and sin is tough on children. And they seem to bear the brunt edge of indulgence and in acts which ruin families. It became a Netflix film. Now it's full of tawdry Appalachian, uh, what they would call colorful speech, but it weaves the story of life as it actually is. It became so popular and was a great hit because so many from Appalachia could relate. Several of you have read the little book I wrote about my father. It's simply the story of our family's hillbilly elegy. I come from long Appalachian stock. My great-grandmother's mother was the daughter of Devil Ants Hatfield, of Hatfield McCoy fame's brother. So... Anderson Hatfield had a brother named Valentine who had a little girl who was the mother of my great-grandmother, tied in with the whole group. The only person ever prosecuted in the Hatfield-McCoy feud bore my last name. Ellison Mounts was hung in Pikeville, Kentucky in 1891. It gets worse when you look into it. Virgil Carrington Jones, the historian writing the story of this hillbilly elegy Mounts version, noted... That Ellison Mounts, and here's how he describes him: He was a brawny, mountain, half-wit. Now I like the first two, you know, could stand that, you know, brawny, okay, mountain, all right, tough guy, half-wit. Uh, he was a bastard child of origin from the Hatfield family, never claimed his mom was Mounts, so he took the name. In a raid on the. McCoy's wanting to burn them out to get retribution in a terrible, sinful incident. He was stationed outside the house. His job was to keep everybody out of the house as it was burning. Alifair McCoy ran out of the house, and he was excited and was carrying a gun right off the porch, and he just shot her and killed her. Frank Phelps, the sheriff, went over and got him and hung him in Pikeville, Kentucky, And that was at the point where hanging was considered inhumane, cruel punishment that nobody could watch, so you had to put a fence around the gallows. They found the gnarliest crag they could find in eastern Kentucky and Pike County, and it it became an amphitheater where everybody from Pike County came out to watch the hanging because they were convinced Devil Lance Hatfield was going to come back and rescue him. This is the story of my family. The Three Eyes of Appalachia Ruin my forefathers indolence immorality and indulgence and were it not for the grace of God which came to my family a couple generations ago I'm convinced we'd be neck deep in it but grace came laid hold of my forefathers and changed the trajectory of my family Now, I want to come this morning and celebrate what the gospel does to our lives and what gospel transformation means to families and futures. Come with me to the book of Titus. Let's look at it together. I'm going to take one verse and open up the whole book of Titus. We'll be looking at Titus 1.12. And we'll note that Paul uses it to describe the glorious transformation that comes to a life that embraces Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is sending instructions to Titus, whom he has sent to Crete, this island. Now, the Cretans were a group unique to themselves and all their own. They had an outstanding reputation in the ancient world for being nasty. We're going to go two different directions this morning. The first direction we're going to go is that we're going to find ourselves in Titus 1. The second direction is that we're going to celebrate how the gospel changes everything. Now, if you're saying to yourself, and this is a sharp group, and maybe some of you are, hey, wait a minute, Mount's... I thought this was Calvary Christian School Sunday. Yep, it is. And the promotion of gospel life and New Testament Christianity is the mission of our school as it provides an education consistent with biblical truth. So we're right where we need to be. So let's look at the book of Titus together. My encouragement is, listen to the message with with the Bible open if you only look at two verses, look at 1.12 and 2.12, listen to the message, and come back and noodle through the book this week by reading it a couple times. You'll have the book of Titus on the back of your hand, and the Spirit of God will have your conscience around the throat asking you whether or not, and asking me, we live a life of gospel integrity. So that's our plan of attack. Point number one. We are all Cretans of habit. Paul said in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That the gospel comes and it brings salvation, but the thoughtful reader says, Paul saved from what? Saved from what? Well, we are saved, sitting in this context, from a Cretan life. Now let me bring three assertions to us this morning that bring us before this mirror of Cretan life, lest we be real critical of the Cretans and pretend like we are not Cretans ourselves and don't have such a heart that needs to be changed by the gospel. Assertion number one, Titus 1.12, in quoting a Cretan poet the apostle Paul exposes our need for gospel change. Look at Titus 1:12 and 13. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, "Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons." End of quote. And then he says in verse 13, "This testimony is true." Now here he quotes a 6th century Cretan teacher named Epimenides. Now, it's not important that you remember his name, but Paul quotes him here, calls him a prophet, that he is rightly characterizing who the Cretans are. Before the gospel of Jesus Christ came to the island, the island of Crete was a total mess. They were legendary for lying. That's what he says. In the Greek pantheon, remember the Greek gods were important to them. Of course, the gods never died. The Cretans were famous for saying the tomb of Zeus, their number one god, the tomb of Zeus is in Crete. Now, wait a minute. Think about it. The Greek gods were immortal. They didn't die. And the Cretans claimed that Zeus's tomb was on Crete. And they said they're just a bunch of liars. In fact, the Greeks coined a verb for lying that sounds just like Cretan, Cretazo, <laughs> and, and it's, it's, they lied so much, they spun a word out in their language to allude to them. The word for falsehood or lie, the noun sounds like Cretan, because even as they spoke of lying, either in an action or referred to it in a noun, a verb or a noun, they wanted people to think about the Cretans, and everybody say, oh yeah, the Cretans, they're they're, verse 12 always liars, evil beast, lazy gluttons. It wasn't enough for Epimenides to say Cretans are liars, beasts and gluttons. So he, he, he gins it up a little bit. Cretans are always liars, evil beast and lazy gluttons. evil beasts, verse 12 they're boorish. they're wild in their behavior Epimenides would go on to write this about the island of Crete he said there's no wildlife on the island of Crete and he argued there didn't need to be he says the absence of wild beast on the islands was on the island was supplied by its human inhabitants so they missed nothing in wild game because they had it in humans and so it was all right. Verse 12, evil beasts, boorish, wild behavior that was characteristic of them. People saw it and said, you're acting like a Cretan. I remember once flying abroad a very long distance. I think it was from Dulles Airport. I think we went 10 hours and stopped and got some fuel. Nobody's allowed off the plane. They did take some people on the plane. Then another... Uh, I remember it was seven hours and got another plane, three hours. So, so whenever I'm abroad, especially by myself, I try to be situationally aware and stay alert to what's going on. And I remember I was tired. I, I don't enjoy long flights like that. And we had gone 10 hours and stopped, and you, know, you could at least stand up in your seat. And so they're letting some people on. And I look at, at, at these three guys who come on, and I say, like, oh, my. <laughs> I want to make sure I know where those guys are seated. I've never seen more boorish, rough, guys get on the plane. And I thought, man, what will happen next now that those guys are on the plane? So I was trying to stay aware of where they were seated. I thought maybe three Cretans just got on the plane. You know, I didn't even know they were from here. Verse, look at chapter 2 and verse 12. Uh, training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions. Here he's extending his description of the Cretans, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, what he has called them to, self-control, upright, and godly lives, just the opposite is being practiced in Crete. You can assume a lack of self-control, a lack of integrity, and an ungodliness that characterized their lives. But the gospel changed Crete, and that's what gospel Christianity does. It changes us. Verse 14, the word lawlessness is used. Lawlessness. No subjection to the laws of the land. And this became regular fare. And so here you have a place given to collect assets, given to greed, uh, Polybius said this, greed and avarice are so native to the soil of Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain whatsoever. He uses the verb warped in chapter 3 and verse 11. You say, boy, these these people, they're really there. Look at verse 3 in chapter 3. For we ourselves are were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's quite a description of Cretan life. But I love the word once in verse 3. Once they were there. But they encountered the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And when they embraced him, change began to come. Gospel Christianity, gospel culture took root in Crete. And Paul sends Titus and gives him instructions to set up structures in the church to promote gospel life. Now, secondly, the bridge, the, 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 the second assertion that brings us to the Cretan mirror to see ourselves, the bridge from native Cretan habits to a grace-filled life is to embrace Jesus Christ. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 3. For we ourselves, I just read it, we were once, and he describes Cretan life. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, notice who acts, notice what the action is, notice who receives the action, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, made right with God by faith, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Jesus' appearance changed our fortunes. Because now that the grace of God has appeared, those of us as Adam's children, and that's all of us who inherit this sinful heart and nature from our forefather Adam, we've been given the opportunity now that the grace of God has appeared to pass out of that life and come into the life that Jesus has intended for us all along and following him. We who found ourselves bound up in Cretan life and found by nature, our reflexes are that hating others and being hated and acrimony. Here, the grace of God appears and gives us the opportunity to be born into a whole new way of life. Jesus tells Nicodemus, and it's this word regeneration, Titus 3, 5 he tells Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we're born into Cretan life, and but now the grace of God has appeared, and we can be born into a new life of gospel Christianity, a grace-filled life, and this happens in embracing Jesus Christ. Horace Bushnell, in the middle of the 19th century, in 1861, published Christian Nurture. It was a part of a, a, a movement that launched liberal, Protestant Christianity. In his volume called Christian Nurture, he denies two things. Number one, that we ever got a sinful heart from Adam and we need a new heart given to us by God. He denied that. The other thing he denied was the necessity of conversion. Oh, we don't need to be converted. And he began to promote a Christianity that looks something like this, and this is as full-bodied as it got. Be nice, be moral, and be good. Sometimes characterized as people look at it now, and some argue that it's taught a lot in in, in student groups and evangelical churches in America, moral, therapeutic, deism. Yeah, God exists, deism, but he's not around and active in our lives. Uh, get in touch with your emotions and let's set this up therapeutically to help us from what we are beset with and then moral be good and that's that's the substance of it whatever that is it's not the gospel because the gospel starts with what is true about us that's ugly we have adam's heart we're all Cretans. But the gospel doesn't stop there. Remember, the grace of God appeared to take us here so that the bridge from native Cretan habits to a grace-filled life is Jesus Christ. Look at this picture that was published in a news story this week. Think of it with me. Here are these kids holding up the virtues of Jesus Christ in a public school. Hope, peace, joy, love. That sounds like a a reading out of Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. But Chuck Colson, before he died, Nixon's uh, uh, President Nixon's uh, aide, wondrously converted after Watergate, uh, gave a speech at Hillsdale College in which he asked and answered a a great question. Can we be good without God? And he argued, no, what we need is we got to get on that bridge and we got to cross the bridge through relying upon Jesus Christ, and when we experience new birth, we're given a new heart to have him dwell in us and live out this life that he has called us to, a gospel-oriented life. What's amazing is, and there's an irony to that picture, the public schoolers holding that up, in that uh, we've worked very hard in the public square to take all of... uh, the teachings of the gospel out of the public square while holding up the virtues of Christ like uh, somehow just holding up the sign is going to get us home there. By the way, it's possible, and that's part of what we talked about on Monday morning, it's possible to have Calvary Christian School on the outside of the school, but it takes more than that to have a place laced with the culture of gospel Christianity. That's not the letters on the wall of the school. It's about transformed lives who've walked across the bridge and who are living out the thrill of this new life that we've been called to. You know, in the last year, we've had two, it was wonderful, we first saw their testimonies on the screen, and they were testimonies of children at Calvary Christian School whose teachers put their arms around them as God was opening their heart to believe and bringing them to the awakening that they were not yet regenerate. They had not yet been born again. They had not yet begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. And they began to rely upon him and bore witness of how God had used the school to that end. This is about a culture where gospel Christianity is celebrated and practiced. The navigators have had their illustration for years. The bridge. How do you get from this position where we are all native Cretans stand? standing in judgment before a God who is holy. How do we get over there and pass that great gulf? We can't go there, so he came to us. The grace of God appeared to us in Jesus Christ, and it's when we repent from our sin and receive this Christ that he forgives us and gives us a new heart, and we are made alive. We are regenerate. He saved us, not by deeds and righteousness as we have done in the flesh, but according to the washing of regeneration and renewal brought about by the Holy Spirit, he has made us alive. The center of everything at Calvary Baptist Church and Calvary Christian School must be the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It's why we would celebrate a verse like John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Third assertion, the way of Jesus has to be taught. And we need reminders. Notice the vocabulary of teaching that's all the way through the book of Titus. Look at 1, 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. There's a teaching word, chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Look at verse 7, a very important verse for our church. Show yourselves in all respect to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Twice he uses the term Show remember in kindergarten we started with show and tell but what every teacher needs to realize is that every day they are doing show and tell by how they are living their life and executing their duties and people get some idea of what gospel culture is from watching their teachers Luke 640 everyone after he is fully trained will be like his teacher in the most godly ends that verse is such a blessing to our school but we reproduce after our own kind. Either robust New Testament gospel Christianity or moral therapeutic deism or whatever it is or whatever we ought to call it. The way to Jesus has, has to be taught. Teachers have such power. We were reviewing with our son last night. Fifth grade, he has a teacher who puts her arm around him And says, basically, you have an agile mind, and you are not giving it all to this task of being educated. And it lit a fire under him. I don't think he got a B from that point on after fifth grade. And it's because that teacher loved him, believed in him, recognized his gifts, and poured into him. And his life is marked by that. That's the privilege of this year for our faculty and staff Show, model, verse 12, train, verse 15, declare. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind. What teacher doesn't live very close to that word? Reminding them. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 8, insist, devote. Chapter 2 and verse 10, adorn. Dress up this gospel Christianity. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 14, learn to devote. Devote. Why is renew, one of our four great words here of discipleship process, rely upon Jesus Christ, renew our minds, relate to others, reflect Jesus Christ. Why is renew there? Because we are commanded not to be conformed to this world, which in the margin of that we should write, don't be a Cretan, but be transformed. How? How? Paul, How? by the renewing of our minds. Why are we doing this Calvary University Wednesday night thing that launches on September the 1st? Because we are making an effort to provide the opportunity to work together at this discipline of renewing our minds. There are bad teachers in Crete. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Paul doesn't mince words. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It's possible for a teacher to be a bad egg and then you smash the eggs in your class that are just developing and need nurture. And it's not that we're all suspicious that all these dear ones who are going to give themselves to this mission this year for what they're being paid are a bunch of bad eggs. I don't mean to suggest that at all. But it's important for all of us to bring our conscience out before the Lord and ask, what are we really doing, and what is the outcome, and what is the product that we are making? Now, our church and our school are on a mission to teach Christ's way of life. Look at verses 11 through 13 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. That phrase is important. The word appeared uh, appears three times. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, That is to give up Cretan life and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope. Calvary Christian School is a gospel community oriented around Jesus Christ. That makes us distinct. Now, there are three statements about gospel life that are here. Number one, gospel life is revealed in the qualification for elders and the curriculum for teaching men and women. You say, Eric, what does gospel life look like in life? What is the end to which we are aspiring? It looks like this. If anyone is above reproach, a husband of one wife, and children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Isn't it interesting that gospel life is characterized by a right response to authority? Fascinating. Insubordination is a word used in verse 6. Submission is a word used in chapter 2 and verse 9. Submission shows up again in chapter 3 and verse 1. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Remember what they said about how there was no gain that they would be ashamed of but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict. That's what a non-Cretan transformed by the gospel looks like. In fact, qualifications for office were designed to be held up for the assembly, not for the, the few, but for all to aspire to. Now notice the teaching. What are the old to teach the young? The old men to teach the younger men. The older women to teach the younger women. Chapter 2, but as for you, teach. What do we teach? Teach what accords to sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Can we just stop and ask if older men are cultivating the virtue of love here at Calvary? Not curmudgeonism. Isn't it interesting, one of the things that is characterized in an old man's life that he is to teach a younger man, is to be out there leading the lig in love. Is that us? Or is it cynicism? and What is it? Older women likewise are to be reverent behavior, not slandered or enslaved to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not stealing, pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the gospel of our Savior, Jesus We have a much greater chance of hitting the target if indeed we have one. The target in Titus is the qualifications for office and the curricula for what is to be taught. Cretan life is a mess. It's ruinous. Ask J.D. Vance. Ask our family. You know and I know there have been people leaving a funeral. They wouldn't say it till they got in the car. But they watched a young lady grow up. They watched a young man grow up. And everybody was banking on them to be, you know, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or, or you know, to, to be in some incredible position of influence. And they, they just had so many gifts. And, they'd start, and, and, and they ruined their life and Cretan life and they died young. And everybody was sad at the funeral and they got in the car and they shut the door. And just within a family... You know it's been said, that was such a waste. What a waste of a life. I can name them. I I was fascinated with them in junior high. They were the daring among us. They were the ones that had the guts to disobey all the rules and make all of us laugh. And they were out there on the fringe. And things were said about what they were experimenting with in junior high. And it was daring. And we watched them all. And they were the envy of uh, the popular circles. I can remember them. Duke and Randy and Kelly. They're dead. On all of their death certificates. Actually, the uh, coroner could have written, cause of death, Cretan life. I mean, gifted guys, great athletes, agile minds, dead. Cretan life took them down. Gospel life is revealed in the qualification for elders in the curriculum for teaching men and women. Finally, in Titus, good works are the practice of a gospel life well lived. If you read the book, the phrase good works is repeated constantly. Good works, good works, good works, good works. You can read that. And in the post fundamentalist culture, some of us would say, oh, yeah, I know what that is. Sing in the choir, usher, take, you know, collect the money, be the one. By the way, every great church is full of great volunteers. But in the book of Titus, that good works is not talking about what you do in volunteerism. It's talking about an authentic, robust gospel life that you are living out. That's what it's talking about. Let me read you just a few phrases. I encourage you to come back to him. Go to verse 7 of chapter 2. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works. What's he talking about? Live authentically out the gospel you say you believe. 214, 31, 35, eight, 314. One, are we practicing gospel lives? Is that our legacy? What are we leaving behind? The practice of the life of Jesus? Or what Thomas Kempis would say, the imitation of Christ? What Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul would say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Gospel life being lived out. That's our ultimate aim at Calvary Christian School. That's our ultimate aim at Calvary Baptist Church. What are we doing? What is our ends? What are we trying to accomplish? It's the development of a culture. A robust culture healthy culture of gospel life and human flourishing that results from gospel life. This gospel changes the trajectories of individuals and families. Peter said, we've given up this foolish life inherited from our forefathers. My forefathers were a mess and so am I apart from the grace of God. But the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. I hope your maiden name is not Jukes, or that was your grandpa's name. It was a name given in a study in 1900 that a man made regarding all the money that the state of New York, he was a state employee, the state of New York was putting in their prison systems And he began to notice that there was one particular family that came from one particular immigrant who came in 1720 to New York who were populating the prison system in great number. He called them the Jukes family. That wasn't their name. And again, if I'm using this, I I hope you're not. If there are any Jukes here, I love you. I know you're not like your family. but uh, This notorious clan in New York State, a total of $1,250,000, this is a 1900 valuation of currency, in welfare and custodial charges. Jukes wasn't actually the name of the other family. The word means to roost, and it was used to them because the family were social floaters with no home or nest. They all originated from one immigrant who settled in upstate New York in 1720 and produced a tribe of, and here are the words used, idleness, ignorance, and vulgarity. Upset about what he found was so many of these, uh, he he learned that, and this was a study commissioned by the New York Prison Commission in 1874, only 20 of the 1,200 descendants who came from the one immigrant had ever had gainful employment. The others were either criminals or lived off of state aides. It was then that he did a study of Jonathan Edwards, the colonial preacher in New England from the 1730s, and his family and his lineage, and he concluded this. By 1900, from this one couple, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, who cultivated robust gospel Christianity in their home, that single marriage had produced by 1900. 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, and a dean of an outstanding law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, and a dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, which included three United States senators, mayors of three large U.S. cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the United States, and a controller of the United States Treasury. Their family had written 135 books ranging from five years in English university to a tome on butterflies in North America. They edited 18 journals and periodicals. They entered ministry and platoons and sent 100 missionaries overseas, as well as stocking many mission boards with lay trustees. One maverick married a daughter of the South Sea Island chieftain, but even that branch reverted to type, and its son became a clergyman. Winship concluded, many large banks, banking houses, insurance companies have been directed by them. They have been owners or superintendents of large coal mines, of large iron plants, and vast oil entrances, of silver mines. There is scarcely any great American industry that has not had at least one family member among its chief promoters. That's from one gospel home. What are we doing at Calvary Christian School? What are we doing at Calvary Baptist Church? We are seeking to live for Jesus and raise up these gospel homes that reflect beautifully on the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, the gospel changed Crete. You could have two pictures. How it started. Boy, it's ugly. Epimenides quote. How it's going. The church broke out. And gospel ministry started. Oh, Lord, teach us to be people of integrity. Teach us to be much more than just in name Christian, but to be Christians where Jesus lives in us. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Deliver us from indolence. Deliver us from immorality. Deliver us from indulgence. The three I's still have a great career in our age, Lord. Make us strong to pass the baton along of this great life of gospel living. We need your help. We need you to hold us because we're also weak and vulnerable. Jesus is a great Savior. Hold on to us. Help us. We have yearnings to be useful to you. But we know our hearts. But we know and have tasted of the power of the gospel, and so we ask that it would be at work so that there would not be others in northern Kentucky who would have more integrity than us because of the integrity of our Savior and adorning the gospel. Oh, Lord, ideals are easy to preach about, but how we need enablement from the Spirit of God to bring it about. Make us to be homes like the Edwards and not the Jukes. Make us to know of your blessing and help in this hour of need, this hour that you've ordained in which for us to live. Help us, Lord. We need you and ask for your help this morning. Hold on to us. Amen. Let's stand and sing.